Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. The 28th annual James River Short Film Festival is this Friday the 13th at 6.30 at the VMFA. Ten films, each under 20 minutes, will be shown featuring filmmakers from Richmond, New York, and California. There's a link to the festival on the webpage for this show at tvjerry.com. By the 1820s, Jefferson was in poor financial shape. He didn't have the money to do what we would call preventive maintenance on Monticello. Things were falling apart when he died. Who buys it but this most unlikely person? His name was Uriah Phillips Levy. That was an excerpt from The Levies of Monticello. Most people aren't aware that a Jewish family owned Monticello for 89 years. Director Stephen Pressman is bringing his documentary to this year's Israeli and Jewish Film Festival, which opens January 19th and runs through the 29th at the Weinstein JCC and several other venues around town. Before he gets here, Stephen and I talked about the movie, including even more surprises about the family and the famed home. Sifter, review of the week. Kindred, now on Hulu. This premise recalls last year's movie, Antebellum, where a modern black woman found herself enslaved in a 19th century plantation. This series is actually based on a 1979 novel by Octavia E. Butler, but with a similar theme. In this case, the modern woman is played by Mallory Johnson, who captures her character's confusion, shock, and sadness with earnest depth. When she finds herself suddenly traveling between today and the 1830s, the major difference is that the typical tropes of slave torture are minimized for a more psychological approach. A whole new dynamic emerges when her white boyfriend ends up back in time with her. After a slow start, the series develops into a tense thriller that depicts yet another variation on the horrors of slavery. Warning, it ends with a cliffhanger, so don't expect a gratifying finale. I gave Kindred four out of five stars. So, Stephen Pressman, welcome to Sifter for the Ear. I'm assuming you've been to Monticello at some point in your life. Actually, several times just over the years as a tourist. And then certainly uh, in the course of making the film, did a number of visits to Monticello. And and in fact, we did a fair amount of filming at Monticello as well. Yeah, I was going to ask about that in a minute. But first of all, you started as a journalist in Los Angeles and San Francisco and then D.C. Where did you work in D.C.? I was working for Congressional Quarterly, a publication that covers Congress and politics and Capitol Hill and legislation and all that kind of fun stuff. Way back in the 1980s, a couple of lifetimes ago. When people still had print. Uh, yes, absolutely. And then you started doing some shorts for American Conservatory Theater out in San Francisco. How did this spark you? How did you get into video production? Was this kind of what sparked it? or I had been this old-fashioned print journalist for, I don't know, 30-some-odd years. It was right. uh, something I started doing right after I graduated from college. And I loved being a, a journalist. I loved being a reporter. I loved being an editor. And uh, I don't know, 10 or 11, 12 years ago, I just was ready for something new without even knowing what that something new was. I uh, ended up sort of reinventing myself in a way as a documentary filmmaker. For somebody who started in video in the 70s, and I feel like, you know, I've learned a lot over the years, here you are coming in a little whippersnapper at what? I mean, I guess it was in the 21st century you started doing this? It was, Jerry, it was absolutely the 21st century. Look, I was very fortunate because I live and work in the San Francisco Bay Area, And there is this wonderful, supportive, vibrant documentary community here in the Bay Area. There were a number of people I was able to just turn to and say, hey, I'm new to this. Uh, What do I need to know? And 201 people were incredibly supportive. 
And in fact, the people that I'm still working with three films into my filmmaking career are uh, many of them are the same folks who were my kind of guides and tutors into the film world a dozen or so years ago. Let's first talk about the films before Levy's keep everybody in suspense. Your first movie was called 50 Children. What was that about and how did that come about? 50 Children, The Rescue Mission of Mr. and Mrs. Krauss was my maiden voyage into documentary filmmaking. It was a great opportunity for me in that case to tell a Holocaust rescue story that had never been told before about a Philadelphia couple, Gil and Eleanor Krauss, who were living a very comfortable life in the 1930s with two young children at home. And in the spring of 1939, Gil and Eleanor Krauss wound up in Vienna, where they uh, selected a group of 50 children whose parents were desperate to send their children to safety. This was a year or so after the Nazis had taken over Austria. It's a great story. And the only reason, uh, Jerry, that I was able to tell that story that had never been told before is that the Krauses, Gil and Eleanor Krauss, were my late wife's grandparents. Oh, wow. Uh, This was the equivalent of getting, I have to say, a great scoop. Uh, It's a fabulous story. I made the film and then fortune shone down upon me because uh, the film wound up premiering on HBO. In fact, 10 years ago, this coming spring. So I had uh, I had some pretty good luck as my uh, initial film as a filmmaker. That's pretty impressive to get an HBO. Now is it still on HBO or is it? Uh, it is. It's is it? on Great. HBO. Okay. Great. Uh, so Great. that was my uh, initial uh, journey as a filmmaker. And then a few years after that film came out, I made another Holocaust-related film. This was a somewhat more controversial topic. Uh, the film is called Holy Silence, and that is a film that looks at uh, the actions and also actually, unfortunately, the inactions right. of the Vatican during the Holocaust. And that film had a nice run on PBS. Surprise guest drop in. We have somebody who wants to say hello to you and talk a little bit about the festival. Leslie? Hi! Footnote. Leslie McGuigan is the Director of Cultural Arts and Community Engagement at the Weinstein Jewish Community Center. Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about the festival in general? How is it going to be different this year? This is what, 15th year? Um, So this is actually our 14th year year. of the uh, Israeli Film Festival. And it's different from the past two years in that we actually have in-person screening. Yeah, big difference. (laughs) Of the uh, seven films that we're showing, five of them will be in-person Two, we're still going to offer virtually. I just feel that people still enjoy being able to sit back and relax and be in their pajamas and watch things from the comfort of their couch. In addition, we've had an Israeli film festival for 14 years or going on 14 years. And in the last two years, we've started to include some Jewish films that are not necessarily Israeli. But we found that especially during COVID, we didn't have the choices. Everything was shut down. They couldn't produce the films. So we're opening it up. And I think the community has really enjoyed being able to see some other films rather than just Israeli films. And Stephen, are you going to be coming to do a QA? and a You going to be here at all? I sure will be. I'm greatly looking forward to being there in in Richmond. It'll be a wonderful opportunity for me. And I I hope, I like to think that the subject matter of the film itself will have some particular relevance and topicality to the audience there. So I'm, I'm really excited about sharing the film there. So Leslie, what about this movie attracted you to it, other than obviously the fact that it has a Virginia connection? I have a committee 
of lay leaders um, that work together to screen the films throughout the year. Um, the reason that they were interested, I think, is all the things that you mentioned, obviously the connection being of Virginians and, and being so close to Charlottesville and having toured Monticello many times. That, of course, is the obvious. But I think just, you know, with the anti-Semitism on the rise and um, all the things that we're dealing with, it's very relevant. As I understand, the movies will not only be shown at the Weinstein JCC, they're going to be all over town. Is that correct? Yes. You know, we really feel that it's important for our films to be viewed by people that aren't necessarily coming to the JCC or not necessarily familiar with the JCC. And we are so fortunate to be able to partner with museums such as the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, where the Levies of Monticello will be screened. We're also showing a film called Valiant Hearts that'll be at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. We always show a film at the Bird Theater. Again, that's just another area of town where we can draw a different crowd. Um, so we're really excited to be able to partner with other uh, organizations within the community and really spread the word and share our festival with more people. That's terrific. That's exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. And I'm sure you'll look forward to uh, sharing this movie with Stephen and everybody else in just a few weeks. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Jerry. Appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Which brings us now to the levees of Monticello. Yes. So what is the basic story behind this? It's another great little known story, Jerry. I'm making a film about a Jewish family that not only owned Thomas Jefferson's beloved home, Monticello, not only spent years and a small fortune restoring and preserving it, but this family actually owned Monticello longer than Thomas Jefferson and his family. Almost 90 years. Almost 90 years. Yeah, uh, yeah. And when I told people that, a lot of people thought that I was making it up. They, right, they had right. never heard the story of a, of a Jewish family that had owned Monticello. Full disclosure, uh, Mark Leibson and Mel Yurofsky both wrote wonderful books about the Levy family in Monticello 20 some odd years ago. Both Mark and Mel appear in the film, and, and I really couldn't have made the film without the work that they had done some years ago. And the film also gave me an opportunity to really, uh, I think, tell a broader story about, unfortunately, the long history of anti-Semitism. You know, Leslie, a few minutes ago, made a reference to uh, the kind of rise in anti-Semitism we're seeing around the country now. Unfortunately, there's nothing all that much new about anti-Semitism running throughout American history. So how did you find this story? Did you stumble across one of the books? or Not only did I stumble across one of the books, but it was uh, quite literally staring me in the face. The small world story is that Mark Leibson, who, who wrote one of the books about this great story, Mark and I had been journalists together at Congressional Quarterly Magazine in Washington, D.C. in the 80s. Mark then went on to start writing a series of wonderful books about little-known episodes in American history. And one of his books from 20-some-odd years ago was Saving Monticello. I actually had a copy of Mark's book sitting on my bookshelf for uh, not exactly 20 years, but for a number of years, I, I had a copy of Mark's book. I kind of hate to admit this, but I never really read it cover to cover. And a few years ago, when I was thinking about what film I wanted to do next after I had made my first two films, I really was just sort of daydreaming one day. And there was Mark's book kind of staring me in the face. Oh, wow. I pulled it off the shelf and I thought, gee, I wonder if 
And I was off and running with the story of the levees in Monticello. Of course, I've been to Monticello too. And I know because I have shot in historical places before, there are a lot of restrictions. You can't just go in there and set up lights and move things around. What were some of the challenges that you did have in trying to shoot actually in Monticello? I'm glad you asked me that question. Do we have enough time for you to do all of those? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll I'll be brief because one of the real highlights, and, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, is doing the filming at Monticello and in particular filming an interview with uh, Susan Stein, who appears frequently in the movie. Susan is the longtime chief curator at Monticello. uh, And I knew I wanted to film that interview with her. And I had the great privilege of being able to film Susan's interview in the front parlor at Monticello. As you said, Jerry, you don't just show up with a camera crew and set up your lights and, and, and roll tape at Monticello. But the folks at Monticello couldn't have been nicer. And the only real challenge was uh, one rule there is that if you're going to film inside the house, not only do you have to finish your filming, but you have to have all of your equipment out of the house before the house opens to the public oh. at 830 in the morning. Wow. <laughs> well, it sounds like you you know a little something about how long it takes to set up for something like this. You know, right. you don't just show up with an iPhone and a, and a little camcorder. Right. It takes a few hours to set up all the lighting. So we got there at 4.30 in the morning wow. in pitch black in order to set up our equipment. But it's a lot of equipment. Right. We we made it uh, with the deadline with a few minutes to spare. and All in one day? In one shoot? Just one day? This was one morning. Yep. Wow. We, we got it all down. Uh, that said... They had plenty of minders sitting around that room, making sure that we were going <laughs> to knock over any, you know, any vases that right, date right. all the way back to when Thomas Jefferson lived in Monticello. What were some of the other challenges that you ran into in making the movie? I realized in making a film about Monticello, I was also going to one way or another have to really comprehensively address the issue of slavery. And, and as it turns out, not just during Thomas Jefferson's time, but during the pre-Civil War years that the house was owned by Uriah Levy, who also had enslaved people at Monticello. Uh, And that turned out to be kind of a filmmaking challenge for me because, how can I say this? It wasn't a central part of the story. And yet I realized that I had really almost an obligation to very critically address the issue of slavery as it existed at Monticello. Uh, I was very fortunate in finding uh, some folks who were extraordinarily knowledgeable and articulate about not only the history of slavery at Monticello, but also folks who knew a a fair amount of information about the institution of slavery that existed after Thomas Jefferson's death prior to the Civil War. And I think it really did add a significant dimension to, uh, to the film. Well, I think that's interesting because obviously one of the things that plays through the whole film, and you've touched on this, is that Levy obviously was very big about religious freedom and supporting religious freedom, being Jewish and obviously in a predominantly Christian country. That was important to him. But then there was the paradox of the fact that during that time he owned slaves. Yes. So I, and that obviously, as you said, it's, it's dealt with throughout the whole movie. And it doesn't really draw any conclusions. It just gives you the information, which I think is much more interesting and fascinating than having skipped it all together. And you're right. Uriah Levy deeply admired Thomas Jefferson. And in fact, the reason Uriah Levy came to own Monticello along later with his nephew is because they had this deep, deep abiding respect and admiration for Thomas Jefferson 
precisely because of Jefferson's belief in religious liberty and religious tolerance. And yet the paradox, as you mentioned, is that this same Jewish family prior to the Civil War has a fairly significant number of enslaved people working for them right there at Monticello. I know that when the levies lived there, they completely furnished the place. And there's a discussion in the documentary about how they wanted that furniture to go away and get more of the historical Jefferson furniture. What happened to all the levies furniture? Is it some, is it in a warehouse somewhere or did somebody? You know, that's a good question. And I, 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 I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say, I don't know the answer. There are a lot of these wonderful archival photos that have been around for well over 100 years now that show this very ornate, almost Baroque furniture that in particular, uh, Uriah Levy's nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, he was running around Europe buying all these uh, pieces of art and fancy French uh, furniture. And the lions. Um, the Levy lions. Now- the Levy Lions have been located. Oh, have they? Okay. The folks at Monticello, to their credit, have spent some years reacquiring some of the things that date to the Levy era. And even though they're not likely to become sort of part of the public tour or anything like that, at least one pair of the Levy Lions, I'm told, will soon be back at Monticello. We don't know yet exactly where they're going to wind up. Uh, but at least part of the Levy legacy after all these decades uh, will be returning to Monticello. I realized the other day, I hadn't really thought about this too much, but 2023 will mark the 100th anniversary of the sale of Monticello from Jefferson Monroe Levy, the, the last Levy family member to own Monticello, to the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, took place in 1923. They paid $500,000 for it. They paid $500,000, which may sound like a lot of money in terms of 1923 dollars. And it's interesting uh, that uh, Jefferson- It still sounds like a lot of money, Steve. It's a fair amount of money. Not for a house, but still. For a house. It's interesting to note, though, that when Jefferson Monroe Levy agreed to sell Monticello to the foundation- for $500,000, a lot of people conveniently ignored the fact that he had probably put a million dollars of his own money uh, into preserving and restoring and keeping in pristine condition the Monticello that we know and love and admire to this day. In fact, when Jefferson himself died, Monticello was basically falling apart because of Jefferson's own very, very precarious financial condition. And it really is due to the generosity and the philanthropy of the Levy family over the course of uh, nearly 90 years that we have the beautiful place that we have and can enjoy today. You know, there's some interesting stories, and I don't want to give too much away because I want people to see the movie. There's, we mentioned the Levy Lions. They're on money, but I don't want to say anymore. You got to see the movie to find out. Well, that's a pretty cool thing to find that out. I was, <laughs> I was surprised. About. And the fact that Uriah Levy's mother is buried there, and for years nobody even knew it. Again, you go into more detail on that in the story. So I don't want to give some of this stuff away. But what would you say? Is there a surprise? What was one of the biggest surprises you discovered when you were doing the research and editing and preparing this movie? We talked about the slavery issue, and, and it was an unfortunate revelation and, and discovery for me, because even that part of the story isn't really addressed all that much in those earlier books that I talked about. So right. as I was doing the research for the film, I was learning things about the relationship between the levees and slavery that really hadn't been explored all that much before. The other big surprise for me, and sometimes people say, well, you know, what didn't make it into the film? because there's always plenty of things that oh, don't yeah. make it into the film, right? 
the Levy family, which goes back generations, uh, Uriah Levy is a fifth generation American when he's born in Philadelphia in 1792. His nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, is a sixth generation American. So we're talking about a Jewish family that goes back uh, centuries in this country. So as I was researching the story of the Levy family itself, I learned all kinds of fascinating things in terms of some of the members of the extended Levy family. And I discovered, for example, that the 19th century poet, Emma Lazarus, the woman who gave us the words that are inscribed on the base of the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, is a distant member, a a cousin of the Levy family. Wow. There are a number of very prominent uh, Jewish Americans who are all connected one way or another to the Levy family. And I got to tell you, I got so excited when I heard about people like Emma Lazarus, uh, and I thought, I got to fit Emma. <laughs> I got to get Emma into the in, right, into right. into the film. And my film editor uh, Richard Levine and my associate producer Lisa Stark, very wisely as as we were putting the film together, uh, you're getting a little carried away here. You got to you know, kill your babies. Yeah, absolutely. Kill your darlings. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Emma Lazarus showed up in the, like the last 15 minutes of the film. And and poor Emma, I, I felt terrible having to leave Emma on the cutting room floor. But it was one of the great discoveries for me as I was putting this film together. But, uh, you know, I realized it also sort of underscores the fact that in telling these stories, we learn so much in this case about this broad uh, Jewish experience, really. You know, a lot of people think of Jews in America as, you know, only been here since the ni- late 19th century, all the Ellis Island Jews who right, came right. from Eastern Europe. And here we're talking about a family that traces its uh, origins in America to before America was America. Right. One side of the Levy family arrived in Savannah, Georgia in 1733. And they are so intertwined with the story of America. And for me, that was also one of the great discoveries as I was putting this film together. Wow. Now, as Leslie mentioned, and I was going to ask you about putting the movie together, whether it was just doing research or interviews or even trying to contact people, did you encounter any blatant or even subtle anti-Semitism in 2020 or 2022 or 2021 when you were producing the movie? Uh, no, I, I certainly didn't personally. With the levies of Monticello, I, I realized that in a way my story ended 100 years ago when the levies sold Monticello. And I thought, well, wait a second, I don't think I should be making a film that ended 100 years ago. That's when I realized that telling the broader story of anti-Semitism, that's what brought us to the horrifying events that took place in Charlottesville, yep. you know, in the shadow of Monticello in the summer of 2017, when we had those neo-Nazi white supremacists. The torch rally, right. The torchlight parade surrounding the statue of Thomas Jefferson. And that's when I realized, again, I had this opportunity to say something, not just about the kind of anti-Semitism that members of the Levy family faced, all these years later, surrounding the statue of Thomas Jefferson, the ugly stains of anti-Semitism were still front and center on the streets of Charlottesville. Uh, and that's when I realized this film had this opportunity to not just tell a small story about a Jewish family and, and Monticello, but something a little broader about where we are still today as a society confronting the stains of both racism and uh, and anti-Semitism 
Right, right. And one little uh, teaser again in there, and I won't tell anybody, but there's a little kind of a gotcha in there about that Thomas Jefferson statue, which is kind of cool. Again, I'll save that. So I thought I saw Peter Riegert's name as a voiceover. Uh, yes, you did. I love people who uh, pay us. Uh, I always read the credits. The credits as you I always did. read the credits. How did you swing that? I'm very happy to say that Peter and I have been uh, good friends for a number of years. He was uh, kind of a mentor in a way when I was first starting out as a filmmaker. Uh, when I knew I wanted some voiceover work, Peter was so kind and great to say, I'd love to help. And Peter provides the uh, voice of Jefferson Monroe Levy. And he was such a welcome addition to the film. So what's next for you and for the movie? You know, I've been very fortunate. The movie is having a great run on the festival circuit. I've got a terrific film distributor down in LA, Menemsha Films, that handles the film. And at some point, I'm obviously hopeful that we'll get some broadcast opportunities for the film. I feel very fortunate that the film is getting the kind of attention it's been getting. And I just enjoy sharing this story with audiences around the country. Now, one last question I always like to ask everybody. When you're not at a film festival and you're not working on your next project, what are you watching? <laughs> uh, I've got all kinds of guilty pleasures. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say that lately I've been watching the George Jones, Tammy Wynette Oh, really? On Showtime? Uh, miniseries mini on Showtime. With Michael Shannon. Yeah, how is that? Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Well, you know, it, it's a soap opera, but it's based on their daughter's memoir. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming it's mostly true. Great music. You know, it's Tammy Wynette. It's George right, Jones. Right. I love country music. So, and I have to tell you, one of the real pleasures lately for me is uh, on Apple TV, Slow Horses. Uh, oh, really? You like that one, huh? Oh, I, I oh. thought it was too slow. And maybe oh. I gave up after like three episodes. You're killing me. I, I, I love it. I, to, to me, and there's a new season now. I just finished the second season. Oh, you did? Okay. Was uh, it better than the first? Because I just couldn't get through the first. I, well, it's if you didn't like the first, you're probably not going to be that crazy about the second one mm -hmm. either. But I'm a huge Gary Oldman fan, first sure, of all. Yeah. I think he's just one of the great actors of his generation. I just love that whole kind of Cold War, John Le Carre, you know, right, spy right. versus spy kind of stuff. It, it, I, I like it. I know it's a cliche to say this, but there's really a lot of really good stuff on TV these days. We're very fortunate to be living in this era of great streaming, going back to The Sopranos and The Wire. And, you know, we've had a 20-year run now of really good television. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a lot out there to watch. And now we can add the levies of Monticello to that list. So I want to thank you again. This has been fascinating. And I'm sure people will be blown away when they see this movie, not only because of the quality, but all the things they're going to learn from it. Great, Jerry. I, I appreciate it. And I've loved our conversation. We could have gone on for hours. And I'm looking forward to hearing what the audience has to say when they have a chance to see my film. So thank Terrific. you. Thank you so much, Jerry. Appreciate it. That was director Stephen Pressman, whose documentary, The Levies of Monticello, will be showing at this year's Israeli and Jewish Film Festival, which opens January 19th and runs through the 29th at the Weinstein JCC and several other venues around town. There's a link to the festival and all the other stuff we discussed on the webpage for this show at tvjerry.com. Coming soon. In theaters. A Man Called Otto. Tom Hanks stars as a cantankerous widower who befriends his neighbors, based on the 2016 Swedish film. House Party, this remake of the 90s comedy, has two house cleaners throwing a party at LeBron James's mansion. Plane, Gerard Butler plays a pilot who has to emergency land his plane to find themselves in a war zone. Skinamarink, 
Two kids wake up in the middle of the night to find all of the windows and doors in their house have vanished. Broker from South Korea comes this drama about people who leave out baby boxes where others can anonymously drop off their baby. Saint Omer is a French import about a novelist who covers a case of a Senegalese mother whose baby was swept away. TV and streaming. The Last of Us, HBO's big bet on the video game about 20 years after civilization when a survivor, Pedro Pascal, is hired to smuggle a girl out of quarantine. The Drop on Hulu, Tom Hardy plays a bartender who finds a battered puppy, but his relationship with a woman introduces complications. Second seasons returning include Vikings Valhalla on Netflix, Hunters on Amazon Prime Video with Jennifer Jason Lee added to the cast, Your Honor on Showtime, Mayor of Kingstown on Paramount Plus, and Servant enters its fourth and final season on Netflix. Next week, Andy Edmonds, the director of the Virginia Film Office, returns for another entertaining year-end review. And you know you can subscribe to this podcast by going to tvjerry.com, click on the podcast tab, and there's the link. This is Jerry Williams. Thanks for listening. For more Sister, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com.